1: Theme: Christ alone. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. That theme is found in the Old Testament as well, although you won't see the English word Christ, but you'll see it as Messiah. But all the time, those Jewish people in the Old Testament were looking forward to the Messiah that by faith alone in him who would be the suffering Savior, they could have eternal life. And then Christ came and he fulfilled those prophecies of him coming the first time. And again, he taught the same truths. And he said, he that believes in me has everlasting life. He didn't say behave. He didn't say believe and behave. He says believes in Christ alone. And then he promised that there would be coming a day when that he would pull all the believers together in what is known as the church and that nothing would be able to prevail against the church, that mighty army of people who believed in their hearts that teaching that in Christ alone our sins are forgiven and we have a home in heaven. And he also said that when the church was to come together, it would come together because the Holy Spirit would come and when he would come there would be great power. And that was a tremendous tremendous promise of the Lord. But it wasn't just so that we would have the power then. It was so that we would have the power then at that time to take the message throughout all the world. And there was no greater motivation than to know that the Lord is going to come back again for us who know Christ as Savior to take us home as well as to receive rewards in heaven if we've trusted him. Not the reward of heaven, but in heaven. But also the promise of... Judgment of the Lord if you don't trust Christ. So you saw a motivation that was going on. And then we learned that in order for this to happen, when the church was to begin, there had to be the uh, first leaders, and that would be what we might want to refer to as apostles. So we did a great study talking about the church planters. We also took a little side trip and learned about what the false teachers were all about. Those would be the ones who would teach contrary to faith alone in Jesus Christ, and so we had to know what they were like because they were going to be in the church from inside, they're going to come into the church from outside. And we were learning all of that. Now, the reason I was covering so much of this material is because I wanted to get to an area which is called what I would call, again, the DNA of the healthy church, but there's going to be five areas that I'm going to pick up at the end of Acts chapter 2. When I first was thinking about teaching us this, I thought how good it would be for us to learn those five specific areas expositionally from Scripture. But I thought too many pastors go right to that, and then they just leave it. I felt it would be wiser for us to have a very strong foundation of understanding before we went into those five, because if we had that, I believe we would have a greater impetus or power or motivation than to live out those five. So Lord willing, again, we are going to begin that next week. It'll be a two-part message. It'll finish the long series on the DNA of a healthy church, and we should bring it to a close before Resurrection Sunday, before Easter. But if you also notice, we talked about the presence of the Holy Spirit. I want to thank all of you for the many emails I received from that message because it was a more challenging message because it talked about the sound of a mighty wind and the tongues that would look like fire and what was that all about that was going on. And so I had to kind of go through that very challenging portion of Scripture and we had really busloads and vanloads of people that were here that were new that never perhaps heard that before. And again, that message that I was giving to you was recorded in Scripture in front of a lot of people that were very much like those who came last Sunday to church. So we don't hold back. We just teach the Word. And again, the responses came. Well, today, we're going to continue our series, but I want to talk about, now that we have the church planters, we're going to witness the very first sermon that Christianity ever heard as a sermon as Christianity, the very first sermon that was ever preached to a church. Now, if you take that back to what is known as The first mentioned principle in hermeneutics or Bible study methods, you're going to find that when it's first mentioned that God generally sets the kind of like the bowling ball in the right direction. So he sets the truth in motion based on that first mentioned principle. That's why it's important for us to take a lot more verses in one package today because the sermon is in one package. Now, the sermon technically is only 23 verses long with a few other responses after that. In my opinion, we could probably read his sermon in maybe five minutes, maybe less than that. But I also think that, according to the context, that Peter preached this sermon over a longer period of time, and then he had a lot of discussion as he was continually hammering back to the people the content of that message. Now, why do I think it's important for us to go through this message a little bit more carefully, the first sermon. One reason is, is because once you see this, this should be, in a sense, in many ways, the template of all the sermons that should be said, should be preached. Now, let me make this clear. It doesn't mean that every sermon has got to follow the exact same, you preach this one over and over and over and over and over again, but you're going to see four key highlights when I get to it that the sermon should have, because these are the main principles, as we point it back to what is known as, here's a phrase, Christocentric. That one means it's going to all focus on Jesus Christ, because of We lift up him, he will draw all people. So while we'll teach what the Bible says about, oh, being debt-free and having a good marriage and all of that is in Scripture, so it needs to be taught from cover to cover, the whole counsel of God, the main basis of all of that is Christocentric. It has to be around the person and work of Christ, especially when you will assume lost people or unsaved people or non-Christians will be hearing what you're saying. So we want to cover that. Now, in preparing for that, I said that's number one, because you want to learn that. The second reason we want to do that is because preaching is so much told to us in Scripture and the value of it, we need to learn about the importance of it. So here's a couple of ears you can listen to this morning's message. One set of ears would be those of you that are preparing for ministry and you're thinking about maybe being a pastor or a missionary, someone who will, on a regular basis, stand before an audience, whether it's a classroom of people or a pulpit or a big crowd out in a field, You might want to follow some of the template of this message, especially when you're going to assume there are a lot of lost people and that's your intent. The second would be for those of you that are going in and out of churches because you're on island and you have to go off island because of military or jobs or whatever, or maybe you're listening on the radio now to me and you're trying to decide what kind of church would you want to go to. You want to select a church that frequently will follow this particular template that you're going to hear today. Now, you need to know, I didn't write this sermon. I'm going to give another man's sermon. It's Peter's sermon. can't be too bad. It's in Scripture. If it's in Scripture, then it's more than just a sermon. It's God's mind on paper. This is the Lord's sermon through Peter to the people then that's been preserved for us today. Now, I have to tell you, you may think that I'm I'm solid and and fearless when I present the word. Every time I get up to speak anywhere... I have to tell you, I am very, very nervous. I'm nervous right now. I'm nervous that I would give it incorrectly or that I wouldn't make it clear or I wouldn't be compassionate when I need to be compassionate and I wouldn't be courageous when I need to say, this is what it really says. So I'm always nervous about that. But I was never so nervous, I'm not so nervous now as I ever was, when I gave my first message, my first sermon. It was in a Baptist church in a little tiny town that was known as the last stagecoach stop on your way to Old Miami. This was in Florida. It was called OGIS. I was 18. The place was filled about with so many people like you. i have never done a sermon, never took homiletics, how to prepare a sermon and how to deliver it. I did have two very important people in the audience. My dad, for the first time, was going to hear his 18-year-old son preach, and he wasn't saved at the time. And I had a girl that I was dating, courting, and that would be Carol. And so I knew that they were both out there. And I have to tell you, they endured that message. And I don't know, but um, sometimes I wonder if Carol endures the messages now that I preach. But the bottom line is, once that was validated, once I had the, the, the calling to share God's word at that time, that it was validated through that, I didn't want to do anything else but to communicate God's word. Oh, I enjoy teaching, and most of this is more of a teacher than a pulpit pounder and a Bible banger. But at the same time, I really, I really enjoy preaching. If I have an opportunity to stand before a crowd, that's my calling, that's what I would do. Now, you need to hear this. That doesn't mean that I'm better or greater than you are. It's just that's my calling and that's what I'm going to do. And I pray that whatever church you go to, that that pastor has a calling to preach the word correctly, clearly, compassionately, and courageously. And I might add this, consistently at the same time. There's five points in another sermon right there. But now with this... I'd like, to help, I'd like you to follow along about the seriousness of preaching. When I was doing this background of just the importance of preaching, because while I will go somewhat through the sermon, I wanted you to hear the bigger picture. This church was launched with preaching. Sure, the spirit came down, and the select few that was there that were saved already, then Peter begins to preach it. They hear the message you're about to hear, and then they get the spirit, and now it really like wildfire takes off. You need to understand the background of the preaching. It wasn't something that was written. It wasn't that you came along somebody and you passed out a little track somewhere, it was that someone stood up and communicated God's word. So as I look through scripture, if you were to ask someone, who was the very first preacher in the Bible, who do you think it would be? Now, some people might think it was Adam. I think it was Noah, according to 2 Peter, that he was one of the first preachers of righteousness. Now you take that to the Old Testament prophets, and some of them had great success, most of them didn't, most all of them were slaughtered or martyred, yet they still stood courageously in front of people who hated them in the message by presenting the gospel. You move that into the life of Christ and there was no greater preacher. The greatest model we have of the greatest preacher, the chief preacher, would be Jesus Christ. It is all through the gospels. He would go towns and what would he do? Three things. He would preach, he would teach, and he would heal people. He would do that. But he also then modeled that, showed the other guys how to do that. Then he commissioned them to present the gospel. Mark 16 says, preach globally. So again, you have that. Now you have the apostles doing this. They're preaching everywhere. Then you have the apostle Paul. He lived and died to preach, if you know what I mean. In fact, he was called a preacher, teacher, and an apostle. That's who he was. Now you move from those days and you move it through church history. Now it gets really exciting. While it was faith alone in the Old Testament, faith alone in the New Testament, the New Testament church was faith alone. A few hundred years after that, it started to get watered down into some other isms and spasms. And the message of faith alone got muddied. And if not muddied, it was given in a mistaken way. It was wrong. And it took all the way to almost the 16th century, 15th, 16th, 17th century for the faith alone message through a few guys that went back to the Bible, back to the Bible, back to the faith alone message in the Bible that decided to make the clarion call that it was by grace alone through faith alone in Christ. And thus you had the Reformation. So you had people like Zwingli and and Knox and Calvin that did this, but that wasn't alone. After you move from that century, move to the next century, and you can move here to America, and you had the Second Great Awakening with people like George Whitefield and Jonathan Edwards. They preached a faith-alone message. You move then into the 19th century, and you had people like Spurgeon and D.L. Moody that preached to thousands of people, giving the gospel of by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And you can fast-forward that even today, and there are men today that are standing before their churches that are willing to take whatever they need to take, to be able to give them the gospel and they're being used of the Lord. And I pray that our church and you young guys that are thinking about ministry, you young ladies that are thinking about teaching, wherever the Lord might lead you in your area field, that you would live and die in the message. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is a message that needs to be preached. So now we come to the sixth part here, and that is the church will have preaching. Now, while it says that here, and preaching is preeminent here, I don't want you to think that all we do is we gather, we preach, and we go home. There are other aspects of the church, and you will begin to hear that next week, Lord willing, so you can be a part of it. But in order for me to open up this passage to talk about what Peter was preaching, it is important that a preacher, when he stands before the audience, that he relates the message to the people that are present. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to dress like them. It does mean that... or. Maybe not dressed, not like them, but the point still being that he is going to communicate a message that is relating to where they are. So if you don't mind, we need to go back just briefly. A few verses before the passage we're going to launch into today. You'll recall that the Holy Spirit came and when he came, it was like the sound of a mighty wind. It was like the flames, of fire of tongues, and they began to speak in a language that the spokesman did not know, but the listeners heard. And all of a sudden we saw that they were baptized, filled with the Spirit, and while that was going on, there was a crowd that was gathering on the outside of the upper room. That crowd that was gathering, I don't believe so much was gathering because of these guys speaking in this tongue. Now that may have been leaked out a little bit, they were seeing what is going on, but what drew them was the mighty sound of that great wind that came in, a wind that was so violent that it drew their attention, and perhaps some other things as well, but we know that all that was symbolic of the Holy Spirit. So many people today think that the Holy Spirit looks like a dove, and they have it on their churches and their literature, but it never said that the dove is the Holy Spirit or otherwise. We know that The Holy Spirit, like a dove, lit on Christ. So you have fire, you have wind, you have a dove, but none of those are the Spirit. They're just symbols. The dove is very gentle. When you trust Christ to save you, you're not going to scream, fall down, go into all sorts of isms and spasms. The Holy Spirit, very gently, like a dove, will come inside of you and will seal you until the day of promise, and it will be there forever because he loves you with his grace. So now that's going on, and now if you will, you're going to find out that there became a problem. The people then began to respond to that message. When they were watching all this going on, the first thing they did, they looked at that, and they began to question. They were confused. They were bewildered. You'll see that a little bit later. The next thing, they were amazed and astonished. So beyond the, what's going on, they they now were, wow, this is amazing. We've never seen this stuff before. And then it went into doubting. This really can't be real. And of course, then it degenerated into mocking. And it mocked so badly that they said, you know what? These guys that are talking and all of this stuff and all that's going on, it's because they're drunk. They've been drinking wine. I hope that you haven't had to experience someone in your presence that was falling down drunk, whether they were a happy drunk or an angry drunk or whatever they were, when you knew that person to be in their right mind and then they're out of their mind, and what that did to you probably caused you embarrassment. You were confused. You were scared. You didn't know what he was going to do next. You kind of mock, why is this? This guy shouldn't be doing this. That's what they were doing. Now, with that being said, now we're going to look at Kind of like what a preacher might look at in the general outline of his message. You're going to see the introduction. Then you're going to see the main points. Then you're going to see the conclusion. And then at the end of that, hopefully, you're going to see the results. And there should be results when God's word is presented clearly and correctly and consistently and all of that. So we have to go back to how did he introduce this? Now, into 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 introducing this message... He just couldn't jump into some truth. He had to connect the truth to what was going on in the minds of the people because they're all just mocking them. So he had to bring that mockery to a stop. So let's go back to the passage, if you will, one more time and pick it up, if you will, at verse 14. All right, that's new material now. It says, But Peter, and by the way, we've already studied Peter, he's the primary spokesman, always listed first in all the lists of the apostles taking a stand with the 11, which means he wasn't alone. He had a band of brothers that were there. I believe in some measure they not only stood with him, but they stood for him. And it says, they raised, and he raised his voice and declared to them. Now that in itself is a sermon, making sure people can hear you, making sure that what you're declaring is in a language or in a style that they can receive. But he says, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem. For a moment, drop down to verse 22. You see men of Israel. So the predominant audience is going to be Jews. Now, this is key to understand verse 38 when we get to that, which talks about repent and be baptized and that whole issue. We'll have to come back to that in a moment. But right now, just so you know, the primary audience is going to be Jewish people. Now, when it says all who live in Jerusalem, I'm sure there could be others that were spilling in to see what this excitement was all about. So he says, let this be known unto you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose. Remember, they were being mocked in verse 13. For it is only the third hour of the day. If you have a good Bible in front of you, a study Bible, it'll probably tell you it was 9 a.m. If you don't, it's 9 o'clock. Now, I know that people can drink, and I've been around people. I don't go to purposely do that, but... We're all big people. Most of the time, the drinking starts a little bit later in the day and into the night. And as it gets later in the night, they're really falling down drunks. And you don't want to be on the highway at 2 and 3 and 4 in the morning on Saturday night or Sunday morning because of the problems that it is. But in this case, he's saying, listen, you guys, these guys are not drunk. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. Come on, get with it, you guys. So he's refuting that just by pure logic. It's 9 o'clock. And probably because of the context, you would never see people at 9 o'clock in the morning drinking, and so that's what he's really making that point there. So it's morning and maybe even more so because of the culture at the time. But he goes a little bit further because he's going to explain what is happening now. And this is what you're going to need to do. You need to kind of lean into this because I'm going to go a little bit faster now. you think I wasn't fast before. Here we go. He says, but this is what just happened, what these guys are speaking in different languages and all of this. Crowds are coming. What this is was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Then verses 17 through verse 21, he begins to use the Old Testament to begin to explain what happens. I'd like you to look up here. If I was doing a full exposition of Acts, I would parse every phrase in here because it is key. I don't have time to do that. But if you want to know more of what that means, you meet me up in my study at 6 o'clock Wednesday, and I will pick this apart for you. But here's what you do need to know because this is critical because he's launching his message now. He's explaining what's happening, and he gets into this. He's explaining. There's a prophet in the Old Testament, which these guys would know about because they were Jewish. They were there for Pentecost, a lot of Jews happening, all listening, and they would know the prophet Joel. Now, he's reminding them what he said. And what he said was in the last days, there's going to be some real wild things happening. We know the Spirit is going to come. Now, the bigger question is, is when is the last days? Well, the last days in the Jewish writings really dealt from the time that Messiah would come all the way through to the time he set up his kingdom. That would be a long last day period of time. The Jewish writings, and for those who really knew it, would see a suffering Messiah who would come first and then a kingly Messiah that would come second. Same guy coming twice. But as they would proceed forward, they didn't understand all their writing. They didn't fully uh, grab all of that. So now in this particular time, time of Jesus, they'd look at Jesus. Now, they'd forget about the suffering Messiah. They kind of thought, well, the suffering Messiah really isn't suffering. I must be suffering Israel. So we're looking for the king. And so now they would see, hey, that's uh, that's not Christ. So what Joel is saying here is, in the latter days, the Spirit is going to come. It's a long period of time, and in that period of time, the Spirit begins that last day, because that's the time of the suffering Christ. Remember, the Holy Spirit comes, and then it's going to proceed all the way through to the millennial period of time. Now, some of you that are beyond all that, remember, come to my office, 6 o'clock Wednesday, and I'll help you understand that. Now, when you go through this passage, you're going to see certain things that are to happen when this all occurs, when the Spirit comes. Those things that's delineated in this passage did not happen at the time that Peter is giving the sermon. The only thing that happened is that the Spirit came. Yes, there was some prophecy, so we saw a little bit of the window shade opening up, just a little bit of a crack, but we still didn't see all of this. The Spirit didn't fall on everybody then because not everybody trusted Christ, and we know that for the Spirit to fall on everybody, then everybody has to trust Christ, And so that didn't happen. So now you have to ask yourself, when is that going to happen? So you continue reading through Scripture. Listen to this. When when the Lord gives something in Scripture at this particular time, it's what they needed to know at that time. But it's not all they need to know, and that's why you have progressive revelation. So now when you talk about fire and blood and all this stuff that's happening, that's going to happen. But it didn't happen then. But it will happen. But it's framed in a period of time. But why is He telling them all of this? To let them know... That's what the Spirit is all about. He is now coming, and now we're really setting a transition in biblical history of something that is of biblical proportions that's moving ahead to get them ready for that. That's what he's saying here. One more little side note. When I went through this and I looked at all of this that would be the full sermon that Peter actually preached, not just what he said afterwards, but what he preached, there's 23 verses. Out of the 23 verses, 10 of those are nothing more than references from Old Testament writings, particularly Joel and David. Now, why am I telling you this? So when you do find a church, you want a church that's going to open up the Bible, they want to show you what God's Word has to say, and that they pack it full of Scripture. Now, I know it's not where you're going to come read the have the Bible read to you and you go home, but the purpose of picking out these verses, and by the way, they were passages, he then was substantiating his point using Scripture, and that's why it's so important. So I just want to tell you how you have blessed me. You bless me because at the end of last quarter, I encouraged all of you to ask for a Bible for Christmas. How many of you showed me your new Bibles? I want to thank the person who donated Bibles for our racks up here so people who don't have a Bible can have it. How important it is to know God's Word and to know it correctly. So they began to preach, and oh, what a message. I just love to know how that happened. I would have loved to have been there to hear how fired up Peter was when he gave that message, how passionate he was because he walked with Christ. He was the closest to Christ when he was crucified, He was right there. So in a sense, he was so Christed, that's my word, even before he had the Holy Spirit and how powerful he must have been as the church's first preacher. So... What he's doing here is explaining what happens. Now we need to move to the main body of the sermon. And this is probably more than what you need to know now because now you're going to hear what did that New Testament church that would become the New Testament church need to hear? Now again, spirit came down on only a few people. The message is going out because the church is getting launched. So if you will, pick it up at verse 22 now. You could look at verse 21 because it is kind of uh, important there because it says in the Old Testament, it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, it didn't say whoever believes and behaves. It doesn't say anything other than call upon the name of the Lord. That's another form of saying trust in, have faith in, rely upon, looking to Christ in him alone, grace alone in Christ. All right, now verse 22 says, Men of Israel, listen to these words as he begins. And he's going to give you the four parts. You're going to see the life of Christ, The death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the glorification of Christ. Let's pick it up now. So he says, Jesus, the Nazarene, kind of like saying this guy that came from some little no-name place, Jesus, a man attested to you by God. So he's talking about the humanity part of Jesus who is deity by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. Now again, what you've seen is, first of all, the life of Christ. These are signs and wonders that he did for other people, miracles, so that he would do that through his life, so that he would attest to who he was, so people would then listen and come to him and be able to share with with them the message. So you see beginning the life of Christ. You don't see the birth of Christ, but that's assumed and that's uh, very appropriate. Verse 20, and by the way, you may see the birth of Christ when he referred to Jesus, a Nazarene, a man attested to you. You might see the birth in that because only humans get born, all right? That's the humanity part of the deity. Now, verse 23, it moves a little bit further into the death of Christ. It says, this man, again, same one we're talking about, the one that did these miracles, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, And I wish I had time to preach this. This means this, that God already knew we'd fall before we fell. He had the plan in place beforehand. And then through man's choices, God used those choices of man as he's orchestrating the simple plan of salvation. And then at the right time, Jesus came.
0: You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando, Florida.